2: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You've probably heard of HIT, high-intensity interval training. In fact, you may feel so familiar with the idea that you think you understand it, but do you? People often hold some popular misconceptions about HIT, and today we'll unpack what some of those are with Dr. Martin Gabala, a foremost researcher of this fitness modality and the author of The One-Minute Workout, Science Shows a Way to Get Fit That's Smarter, Faster, Shorter. Martin explains the main, underappreciated advantage of HIT, which revolves around the intensity duration trade-off. The higher intensity you make exercise, the shorter your workouts can be, while still triggering improvements in metabolism, cardiovascular health, and mitochondrial capacity. We get into the fact that the intensity of HIT needn't be as high as you might think, and that, contrary to popular belief, sprinting at intervals is actually a predominantly aerobic rather than anaerobic workout. Martin answers questions like whether zone two cardio has an advantage over HIT if the so-called afterburn effect of HIT is real, if you can do HIT if you're older or have heart problems, and whether you should worry about the way HIT can raise cortisol in the body. He also shares specific HIT workouts you can do, including a walking interval workout and one of the best higher intensity protocols to try. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash hit and that's H-I-I-T. All right, Martin Gabala, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a professor of kinesiology at McMaster University in Canada, and you spent a lot of your career researching high-intensity interval training, or HIT. I'm curious, what led you down that path? Yeah, sort of a personal and
0: professional interest. The the personal interest is when I first got to McMaster, I was a busy young assistant professor, uh, had a working spouse, two young kids at the time. And so, you know, quite ironically for a professor of exercise physiology, I found myself with very little time to exercise. And that dovetailed with a professional interest. Uh, For a long time, I've taught a fourth year course called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. And my students are always interested in the training regimes of high level athletes. And so I would ask them, you know, why do these elite endurance athletes sprint? Why do they run hard or do these short, intense workouts to enhance their aerobic performance? and so it was those combination of things that uh,
2: led me down this path. I think everyone at this point has probably heard of high intensity interval training or hit. I mean it really had a moment. I mean this is about when the when your book came out, the 1 minute workout came out and you wrote some articles for the New York Times. Like went viral. Like you could just do a short workout, really intense and get all these benefits. But I think when most people think of Hit, and I know I did this before I read your book. They typically think it's, it's got to be a boot camp style, super intense, CrossFit, workout of the day type workout. But one of the points you make in the book is that idea of HIT, while that is HIT, that idea of HIT is too narrow. So how do you define high intensity interval training? Yeah, absolutely. And For sure, this idea that you need to go
0: all out or as hard as you can go, that's a big misconception. Certainly, that's one type of high-intensity interval training, but it's not the only type. And so to me, HIT is very simply alternating bouts of relatively hard work and recovery periods. Now, high-intensity, we can generally equate that with vigorous intensity effort, you know, as compared to light or moderate. And there's well-defined metrics in physical activity, exercise, prescription guidelines for what constitutes vigorous intensity. So if you can imagine a simple 10-point subjective scale where one is laying on the couch or complete sedentariness and 10 is sprint from danger pace or save your child from an oncoming car, uh, vigorous exercise or hit is about a seven. It roughly corresponds to about 80% of maximal heart rate. And for an athlete, it means the severe intensity domain. And we use other metrics such as critical power, critical speed. But key point here is that it is not only all-out exercise. Absolute intensity can vary dramatically between individuals, but the relatively relative intensity
2: can be quite similar. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What constitutes intensity is going to vary from person to person. So someone who's super fit, crossfitter, type guy what that person has to do to get to a high enough intensity to have a high intensity interval training workout it's going to be different from someone who hasn't worked out or exercised in 30 years and their intensity might just be they get up off the couch and they walk briskly for a little bit that that's going to be intense for them Absolutely. There's a figure I like to show in presentations
0: to different stakeholders and it's two heart rate tracings from two individuals on very far ends of the fitness spectrum and the top heart rate tracing is from an Olympic athlete and the bottom tracing is from an individual with coronary heart disease, but they're both doing the same interval training workout normalized to them. They're both doing four-minute intervals at about 90% of their maximal heart rate. Now, of course, the Olympic athlete is working at a very high pace. And as you alluded to, the the you know, deconditioned patient is hardly doing much more than a, than a walk or a brisk walk. But it, it really is a dramatic illustration of this notion that you know, we can really scale absolute intensity to elicit the same relative stimulus, even if people are on very far ends of the fitness spectrum.
2: Okay. So another important part of hit is the interval part. So it's not just you're going hard for as long as you can. The idea is that you take a break from it every now and then and then go back up. So you're trying to create just this wave of extremes in your workout. That's right. We
0: talk about hills and valleys, and you know, going back to athletes, you know, a common refrain is make your hard days hard and your easy days easy, and and so it's the same notion, right? And those recovery periods are very, very important in order that you can go hard in the subsequent intervals. But this undulating pattern is intrinsic to the method.
2: Okay, so basically HIT is alternating higher intensity bouts of exercise. With lower intensity in the same session. And you're alternating because you can't stay very high intensity for long. I mean, the idea is, and we're going to talk about this more as we go along, but by ramping up the intensity, just a few short bouts of exercise can give you a lot of the benefits, just like longer sessions of exercise, but in a shorter amount of time.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the underlying physiology is the same. You know, your body really does. There's an old saying that your your heart doesn't know what your muscles are, are doing. It just, you know, realizes it's some sort of physiological stress or, or challenge. And what we're finding is that, you know, intensity really plays a key. And so we can definitely... Trigger responses through traditional moderate intensity continuous training, relatively high volume. But many of those hallmark adaptations, it seems we can trigger with a a surprisingly
2: small dose of the vigorous intensity uh, work as well. So while Hit really burst on the scene, I'd say, you know, the middle of the 2000s, early 2010s, one thing you do in your book is that you highlight that athletes and other professions like the military as well, they were using. Hit without even knowing they're using hit to get in better shape. Yeah, absolutely. So athletes
0: tended to perform high volume, high intensity interval training. And so there's very famous examples of people like Paavo Nermi, Emil Zatopek. These were Olympic champions in multiple events. And for example, legend had it that Zatopek sometimes completed 15 miles a day of intervals as 200 and 400 meter repeats. So at these very, very high volume protocols, but also there were individuals like Roger Bannister who famously trained with intervals on his lunch hour when he was a very busy medical student, running repeats on a quarter mile track.
2: And then you also highlight that it was interesting. The Canadian, is it was the Air Force, or the, it was one of the military units in Canada. They <laughs> this guy stumbled upon HIT and he used it to help get new recruits in shape. That's right. One of the first exercise physiologists was hired
0: by the Canadian military at sort of the height of the Cold War. Because at one time, you can imagine these service members stationed in very remote outposts, you know, literally near the North Pole. And at one time, So many Air Force pilots were unfit. About a third were deemed unfit to fly on missions, and so the government realized they had to do something about it. But you know, you're stationed in the far north; not a lot of specialized equipment. You don't want to be outside very much, and so they came up with this plan called Five BX, which stood for Five Basic Exercises. And sort of the tagline was, "You could get fit with these simple bodyweight style exercises." It only took about 11 minutes a day, and this spread well beyond the military. And eventually about 20 million of these pamphlets were distributed to Canadian households in the early 1960s. There was an equivalent plan for women called XBX. But again, it was this idea that you could get fit, didn't have to be fancy, didn't require a lot of time, but it was based on this idea of you know getting up to a
2: vigorous pace in order to, to stress the cardiovascular system. Well, we've been talking about you can use hit to get fit. I mean, increased fitness. Uh, Let's talk about what we mean by fitness. Um, And in the book, you talk about there's, you know, we have different systems in our body, the anaerobic system and the aerobic system. How does HIT make us more fit? We're doing a lot of rhyming here. Uh, How does HIT make us more fit, both anaerobically and aerobically? And I guess we'd have to explain what the anaerobic systems are and the aerobic systems are for those who aren't familiar with it. Let's start there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So basically two ways of generating energy within the body.
0: And so aerobic means requiring oxygen. So you can imagine we 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 literally are burning fuels such as sugars and fats using molecular oxygen to produce energy. And so very much like a fire, you know, you need wood for the fire. That's the glucose or fatty acid molecules. You need oxygen and you need the spark as well to, to keep the fire going. Now we can also produce some energy without the use of oxygen. And so this is the, notion of anaerobic or non-oxidative energy, and you could think of a spectrum um, or a continuum rather where the aerobic system is great in terms of capacity, very high overall amounts of energy, but it comes at a cost of it's slower, and so non-oxidative or anaerobic energy, it doesn't require oxygen, it's very, very fast in terms of the rate at which it produces energy, but its capacity is very, very limited. And so for a long time it was thought, or you still hear this very commonly today, that Is anaerobic exercise. And again, very much a misnomer. Any type of repeated sprint is primarily fueled by the aerobic or oxidative energy supply system. And so, you know, you can think of team sports or, or, or that, but repeated sprints. Very much an aerobic stress. And so it's not surprising then that we see these profound responses within the aerobic energy supply system. You know, even during a 30 second, as hard as you can go, all out sprint, about 20% of the energy is coming from aerobic metabolism. And then when you do repeated 30 second all out sprints, the
2: predominant energy providing system is,
0: is aerobic metabolism.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah, I've I've heard that same thing that sprinting is an anaerobic metabolic conditioning, and if you wanted to get aerobic conditioning, you have to do the more steady state cardio. What do you think is going on there? You know, like why does that idea still exist that sprinting only engages the anaerobic system when sprinting at intervals at least, uh, you're actually engaging the aerobic system too.
0: Yeah, well there's no doubt, you know, if you want to become a better sprinter, you better sprint train, right? And so sprint training, it will definitely stimulate non-oxidative energy metabolism and, and again literally make you a better sprinter and develop those enzymes and that supply Method. It's a fact that when you do a single sprint, most of the energy is anaerobic. But again, it's very, very different when we do these repeated sprints. And so I'm not really sure why that endures so much or we use these terms like aerobic and anaerobic. And, you know, another misconception is that we only utilize one system or the other. We're very much, uh, you know, virtually every type of exercise that we do, whether it lasts a few seconds or many, many hours, there's always going to be some blend or some contribution for both of those main systems. And really it's whatever system uh, predominates. But uh, again, suffice to say repeated sprints, very potent aerobic stimulus. And th- you know that's associated with a, a wide array of health benefits as well when we develop the aerobic supply system.
2: So what are the aerobic responses our body has when we take part in repetitive sprinting at intervals? Yeah, probably the biggest one is is
0: cardiorespiratory fitness. And, you know, that's that notion of cardio health. It's largely determined by the capacity of your heart, your blood vessels to circulate oxygen through the body. We measure that clinically or in a laboratory with a maximal oxygen uptake test. So that's a VO2 max test. That's clearly very important for athletes. But There's very strong and compelling epidemiological evidence to show that having a higher cardiorespiratory fitness is associated with a lower risk of dying from all causes, a lower risk of developing many different chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes. And so any way that we can enhance our cardiorespiratory fitness is really, really important. So you can sort of think of your cardiorespiratory fitness as the ceiling, right? And we want our ceiling to be as high as possible. And then the other aspect to fitness is metastasis metabolic fitness, and that's largely determined by our muscles. And that sort of regulates how close to the ceiling you can work for a prolonged period of time or your resistance to fatigue. And so, you know, athletes want high cardiorespiratory fitness and a high metabolic fitness. They want a big ceiling and they want to be able to work close to that for a long time. But it's, again, the underlying physiology is the same. And so individuals who are very deconditioned, they often have low ceilings, but they have a very low percentage of the ceiling that they can work at as well. And so any type of exercise training will tend to enhance both of those things. But again, we've learned that the vigorous intensity intermittent exercise can be, you know, we talk about an efficient way to train. What that really means is we, there's some time efficiency there and we can get away with less total time and probably exercise and still get to uh, to a similar uh, level of improvement.
2: Yeah, so you could do an hour of steady state cardio And get, you know, X amount of benefits in terms of VO2 max or increase in mitochondria in your cells, or you could do a 10 minute high intensity interval training and get roughly the same benefits. Is that the pitch, the sales pitch? Yeah, no, it is, right? And, you know, arguably, we should do both. And, you know, you, you very much see these um,
0: arguments where people will try to demonize traditional cardio, or now there's sort of a pushback against HIIT. And I, you know, I really have a ton of time for those to try to say what, you know, what is the best type? Again, I I think, at least from our research, what we've been trying to do, we talk about expanding the movement menu, which really means, you know, we've largely been telling people to do the same thing for a long time. And that's fine. The, the physical activity guidelines are based on excellent science. But, we know a lot of people aren't listening, right? And one of the Perceived barriers, whether whether it's real or not, is a perceived lack of time, or people think, oh, if I don't have an hour in the day, I'm gonna blow off my workout. And I think what the interval training literature is showing is, you know what, it you don't need a whole lot of time and still get some bang for your buck there. And really, that's been our the focus or a focus or through line of our research is you know, trying to establish the scientific credibility of these brief, vigorous type workouts, and then you know, hopefully presenting that as an option to people. We're not saying it's the only work that you should do or you know if you don't like interval training okay that's fine <laughs> go do the moderate stuff but trying to expand that movement menu give people more physical activity options just like we try to give options for dietary strategies you know pick the food you like you can sort of pick the exercise approaches that you like because the best one is what you enjoy you're more likely to stick with it over the long term
2: it seems like people keep rediscovering hit or interval training you know every 10 years or so you see this in the fitness industry you'll see these trends where like oh It's steady state cardio. Like, no, no, no. We're going to do HIT now. HIT's the best thing in the world. Like, no, actually, it's steady state cardio. Because I think in the past five years, I've seen a lot of talk about zone two cardio, where it's, you know, you want to stay in zone two for 60 minutes and get so much of it a week. And I've been doing that. I've, I've enjoyed it. It allows me to watch movies and television shows that I don't otherwise wouldn't watch. But I think what your research is showing is that. There's nothing wrong with zone two cardio. It, it, it's very healthy for you, but if you don't have time, HIT might be an option for you.
0: No, agree, and so you know, I, I think some of the, and you're right, you know, these things come in and out of fashion a little bit, but I, I think some of the pushback against HIT comes uh, certainly from some overstatement regarding potential benefits of HIT. You know, hopefully not from our laboratory or interviews like this, but definitely, you know, see you see some overstatement. You can get away with a few minutes a week, and you know that's the solution for fitness. Or so when we start saying, you know, uh, this is the solution to our inactivity problem, or this is the best way to exercise, or the optimal approach, I. I think that's where it becomes problematic. You know, to my mind, the, the rise of zone two is owing in part to that's how high level endurance athletes train in terms of a roughly an 80-20 split. So if you're a high level endurance athlete, you know, training 25, 30 hours a week, there's very good evidence to show that they tend to center around this 80% low intensity high intensity, much of that being intervals. And so, you know, it's interesting because classically zone two has meant the heavy intensity domain. And this is where there's a classic three zone training model for, for athletes. But, you know, now zone two has commonly been interpreted as low intensity Sub-lactate threshold based training, and you're right. You know, it's it's uh, definitely can be beneficial. You know, I'm I'm unconvinced, or I just don't see the data that Zone Two is best to optimize your mitochondrial capacity. There's many different ways to do that, and so I think again, ideally we should train across a range of intensities. But I'd come back to this idea that I think as as volume decreases, intensity is arguably more important. And so, where I would take some exception to the commentators is suggesting that because athletes who do 25 hours a week train this way, that's how everyone else should exercise. You know, regular people who might have an hour a week or, you know, two hours a week to exercise, or maybe they only have 20 minutes that they're willing to do. I think they're doing anything is clearly better than nothing. But engaging in a more vigorous effort, again, not necessarily all out, it's, it's better bang for your buck, certainly given the time investment.
2: Yeah, I know I made a big emphasis on zone two starting two years ago because the, the, the sales pitch on, oh, it helped increase the amount of mitochondria in your cells. I was like, well, that sounds like it's important. And so I'm doing two to three hours a week on the elliptical, watching Cobra Kai on YouTube, but I'd have days where I couldn't get a session in, a zone two session. It's like, man, it's an hour. I don't have an hour. And so I just wouldn't work out. It's like, well, I'm not going to get that mitochondria that I need. But then after I read your book, this happened to me last week. I didn't have time. I had literally had 15 minutes. So I just got on my airdyne bike, the fan bike, and I did a interval thing. I was like, hey, I got it. in. I got some some of those aerobic benefits from doing that 10-minute interval training workout. Fantastic. Right. And that's the key takeaway,
0: I think, is lots of different options, even for a given individual. You know, I'm, I'm a committed exerciser to this approach. Well, if I can't do my approach on that day, maybe I'm going to try something different. And so, again, vary it up. And, you know, to your point, when time is pressed, maybe engage in some of the, the vigorous stuff. And even, even if only you do it for five or 10 minutes, know that you're still getting some benefit there, at least to maintain your fitness, you know, until you can get back to your regular routine.
2: Okay, so HIT, you can get the same aerobic benefits as doing the long and slow and steady cardio. I think that's good to know. I mean, you talk about how it can improve our cardiovascular health, reduce uh, you know, our risk of heart attacks, heart disease. I mean, you also talk about how HIT can help improve or manage diabetes and insulin resistance. What does your research say there?
0: Yeah. And so again, I want to be, you know, I want to really emphasize here any type of exercise can do these things, right? And so these are not necessarily exclusive benefits to HIT, but certainly some evidence from our laboratory, a lot of other laboratories, shows that HIT can improve measures of insulin sensitivity or blood sugar control. And so part of the reason for that is that, you know, we have in our body these things called glucose transporters. They're in all of our tissues, but they're responsible for sort of moving the glucose molecules or the sugar out of the bloodstream into our cells where it can be taken up and stored or used for energy. And so exercise generally, and in particular vigorous exercise, enhances the capacity for glucose transport. And so that's likely one of the reasons that blood sugar control can be managed a little bit better. Or certainly if you're an individual with type 2 diabetes and you engage in regular exercise, one of the things that you'll find is your physician is going to say, well, you need less of your medication because the exercise is doing that for you. And so we don't now need to give you drugs or as many drugs in order to try and regulate your blood sugar because you're sort of doing it on your own through physical activity.
2: Another benefit I've seen touted for HIT is weight loss, this idea of the afterburner effect. What does the research say about that? Is that legit? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely something to it. Uh, again, it's one of these things I think that's often overstated. And so, you know, you look online and you might see someone's comparing an interval versus a traditional cardio workout and see this massive afterburn effect. Uh, it's definitely real. So, this idea of a heightened metabolic rate in recovery, you have this transiently higher calorie burn and it can add up over time so people say you know how can hit especially if it's short result in any calorie burning at all well it it does relate to this idea of the afterburn effect but again it's relatively small and we we shouldn't overstate it and you know hit can play a role in weight management efforts just like other types of exercise but you know the nutrition side of the equation is the primary driver there
2: we're going to take a quick break for a word from our Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay, so HIT can improve our aerobic capacity. It can improve our cardiovascular health, can help with insulin sensitivity, with weight loss. How much HIT do you have to do to get these benefits? Like how long do the sessions need to be? And like how many sessions do you have to do before you start seeing these benefits? Have you guys looked at that?
0: Yeah, we have. And and so definitely the responses, the adaptations, they can occur surprisingly quickly. So we're talking within a week or two, you know, we've done a study, for example, in older overweight individuals with type two diabetes, and we put them on a HIT protocol that was only six sessions over two weeks. And even after two weeks, we saw marked improvements in some of those things that I was talking about, their glucose transport capacity, some markers of blood sugar control. So the responses can occur occur very quickly. And probably the, the more deconditioned you are, the faster the response is, you know, you probably have a lot more room to, uh, to improve. And we've got to be careful there because, you know, we're not saying to these people that, especially if you're very deconditioned, hit does not mean jumping off the couch and pedaling your heart out on a bike. It's just, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, going a little harder than you may have before. So it definitely can occur quickly in terms of how, long the sessions have to be. Again, this is where it really comes back to what's the intensity. And so there's many different hit protocols, but certainly 10-minute total time commitment involving you know, one to two minutes of vigorous intensity exercise can be enough if you do that over a few weeks to start to see measurable improvements in various health and fitness markers.
2: And just to recap, the intensity we're going for is on a scale of one to 10. Seven is about what we want to hit that's right. Seven out of ten is that vigorous
0: range, and obviously, you know, and, and for reference, there, a traditional moderate intensity would be about a
2: five on that range to help people try and scale it. How do people typically feel when they're at a seven? It's just like you're breathing really heavy, you're sweating. Like, what are some of the physiological responses?
0: Yeah. And so one of the classic ones is, you know, moderate exercise being that five, you could carry on a conversation or you could talk in sentences, but you wouldn't want to sing. Whereas if you're into that vigorous range, you know, you can grunt out a few words, but you really don't want to speak in sentences or, or have a conversation. So there's sort of that's what we're talking about there in terms of these subjective cues to, to know you might be in the right range. The interesting thing is, especially with the the shorter the intervals, some of these traditional metrics, whether it's heart rate, or relative to VO2 max or heart rate reserve they they don't seem to align as well and so you know for talking 20 30 second efforts people can go at a surprisingly high pace but they don't perceive it as such because the the effort is over quite quickly and so it's it's a real challenge frankly in terms of trying to apply some of these brief vigorous protocols widely and try to translate this into exercise prescription for people because a lot of the metrics that we normally use don't necessarily apply but you know this idea of perceived exertion that zero to ten scale it, it's probably about the best we have uh, in terms of applying this widely and in a way that people can understand.
2: And then, what your research has shown: the higher you go up in intensity, the shorter the duration can be. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, there's clearly an intensity-duration trade-off. It's not necessarily
0: linear either. It's it's almost exponential. So as the intensity really gets up there, the dose that you need, the the volume or the time that you need, can really
2: uh, really drop off. And there's you know some very clear research to to show that. Does hit affect men and women any differently or is it the same yeah so i I, there's definitely some differences related to
0: biological sex but they appear to be quite subtle there's a much greater range or scale for just fundamental inter individual differences between humans but some of our work some research from others has shown you know subtle differences and you know you can point to some underlying biological variables there maybe related to hormone concentration or the estrogens that could potentially impact on this from a mechanistic basis but again suffice to say a little bit of evidence um, maybe females don't have as pronounced a cardiovascular response as males but again I think that's more related to just inter individual differences between humans or that's much broader. And clearly both men and women can benefit from interval training and benefit from you know many different types of exercise.
2: Uh, what about age and hit? There might be some older men listening to this podcast. Maybe they're in their 60s and 70s and they're like, oh, I don't want to do that hit because I might have a heart attack or something. Is there any risk to hit if you're older?
0: yeah so i I, like i i would you know and to that specific example no one has to do hit if they don't like it or prefer it right so there's a couple ways to look at this now number one is if we look at the physical activity guidelines that generally recommend moderate to vigorous exercise in prescribed amounts the suggestions or the recommendations are essentially the same for adults 18 to 64 and older adults 65 plus now that's not saying that if you're 65 plus you should explicitly do vigorous vigorous exercise or high intensity uh, work. But again, when we look at the guidelines, adults of all ages are recommended to do vigorous intensity exercise. I think we clearly need to be mindful of chronic conditions both musculoskeletal and as people age uh, there tends to be increased potential silent risk factors cardiovascular disease risk factors and so you know the the standard advice of course is that people should see their doctor if they're going to start or change an exercise regime start slowly right so if you're you're just getting into exercise physical activity start with the moderate stuff then add the vigorous stuff but also People do not necessarily need to be afraid of vigorous exercise. And, and more people than we think, many more people than we think, can perform vigorous intensity exercise HIT safely. And I think there's fairly compelling data in that regard. And definitely, HIT has been applied to individuals with many different chronic conditions, including cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, older individuals, people with cancer. So, again, my take home points there are. Many more people than we think can do vigorous exercise, but of course, people need to be smart, ideally get checked out. And the older you get, you know, maybe back off on the sprint and all out stuff unless it's really suited to you and, and you're suited for it.
2: And you also point out, what's is interesting in the past 20, 30 years, cardiologists or heart hospitals, at first they're very leery of HIIT because you know, they're treating people who had cardiac events, heart attacks, like, well, that's just going to hurt them even more. We don't want to do that because it's so stressful in the heart, but you're starting to see a lot of them incorporate that in the recovery process of heart attack patients. They're not going to do the all out 10 sprint, but they're getting their patients to do vigorous exercise on a, in, a, in a supervised manner because what the studies have found is that it helps strengthen these people's hearts that have gone through a heart attack.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You know, and at one time, you know, rest was all that was prescribed after a heart attack. And um, at one time, you know, we wouldn't think that anyone who was a post MI patient would lift a weight. And now we know that many cardiac rehab programs incorporate resistance training. And so I think it's the same with vigorous exercise. Ideally, it's properly supervised, but. You know, and it depends across the world. Everyone's reading the same science, but uh, you know, for example, in Scandinavia, I think interval training is much more an accepted part of cardiac rehab practice. We're a little bit less, I would say, in in North America, and you know, and that's uh, that's fine. But clearly, vigorous intensity exercise HIT is being utilized widely in in cardiac
2: rehab. Does HIT raise your cortisol more than other forms of exercise?
0: Maybe a bit, you know. I I, I'm less concerned, or I I, I'm not convinced. Sort of these acute fluctuations in hormones post exercise matter that much, and I don't think there's evidence that, for example, you have sustained rises in cortisol or other hormones that you know might be associated with uh, muscle breakdown
2: or stress.
0: So I don't think it's something that people need to be concerned
2: about. So since your research has started, you've had other researchers in other fields look at hit and you've had exercise psychologists look at hit and one thing that some of these exercise psychologists are finding that hit is a really effective way to get novice exercisers to start the exercise habit which seems kind of counterintuitive because hit can be really unpleasant and unpleasantness is one reason why people don't stick with an exercise plan so have they figured out why is hit such an effective way to get beginning deconditioned exercisers to keep exercising?
0: Yeah, this is a real hornet's nest, I would say, and and among the exercise psychology community, I'm, you know, and I'm not a behavioral expert. Uh, there are really polarizing opinions around the potential for HIT as a public health strategy. And you're absolutely right. One camp would say, you know, if if uh, exercise is vigorous, if it's intense, uh, people find it unpleasant, and so they're unlikely to do it. And so, you know, HIT is Bound to be a public health failure. I, you know, I don't subscribe to that notion. And there's definitely a lot of exercise psychology, behavioral research coming out to suggest that, you know, okay, wait a minute. Brief, vigorous, intermittent exercise, it's completely different from continuous vigorous exercise. It also depends when are you asking people the question? You know, if you ask them during the bout, they might rate hit a little bit lower, but after the bout, they're like, you know what? Didn't take me as long. I'm getting the same benefit. I'll take that. And there was a recent meta-analysis based on over 100 studies, almost 9,000 participants, that found similar rates of measures like compliance and adherence To high intensity interval training and moderate intensity continuous training, so such that those were not different. So I think you know you can cherry pick individual studies, and for the critics of HIT, I would say, well, you know, what's the fallback? Because we know that the adherence to the broad public health adherence to moderate exercises is not very great, and so to demonize any form of physical activity doesn't make sense to me. If arguably we're all in the same team here, and we agree that the the biggest thing that we need to do is just get more people active and more people moving. Uh, you know, again, coming back to this idea the more exercise options, the better. Let's expand that movement menu rather than sort of demonize one particular approach.
2: And I think one point a psychologist made was that when you take a deconditioned person, someone who hasn't exercised, and then put them on the path to run a 5K, when they're first starting, they're doing interval training. But unintentionally, because so they can only like run maybe a few hundred feet and then they got to stop and walk and then they catch the breath and they start like they might in, in the, the person's head. They think they're doing steady state cardio and they think they're failing because they're not running the entire time. It's like, no, actually, you're just doing interval training. That's fine. You're getting all these these great health benefits doing that a hundred percent you know it's sort of like
0: changing the narrative or flipping it on its head and it can be a very empowering way to exercise it's like no no wait a minute you're not a failure because you can't sustain a pace for 30 minutes you're training like olympic champions that's what they do they sort of go hard they take a break and they do it again so you know that's that's completely okay and so i think if you're looking for buy-in or that rather than telling someone they're a failure because they can't do 20 30 minutes continuous because their starting capacity is so low saying hey an intermittent approach it uh, works just fine. So, you know, keep it up. I love that.
2: Okay. So, the HIT workout, you're not saying it's better than or steady state cardio. It's another option to choose from in your fitness repertoire. So, if you don't have time for an hour long zone two cardio session, just do a 10 minute interval workout and you get all these benefits in terms of aerobic metabolism, cardiovascular health, insulin, diabetes, weight loss. You get all those benefits with just maybe 10 minutes of work. I think that's how people should look at it. It's yeah. an
0: option. It's a particularly time-efficient option. It's not necessarily the best or for everybody, but
2: definitely work it into your uh, fitness menu. All right. Well, let's talk about some HIT workouts that people can do. So after listening to this episode, they'll, they'll do some or have that as an option. What are the type of movements you can do for HIT? Almost anything. So I, you know, again, getting back to this
0: idea of your heart doesn't know what your muscles are doing, again, generally speaking, I don't think it matters. And our research would suggest it wouldn't matter if it's indoor-based cycling, if it's stair climbing exercise, if it's uphill, if it's bodyweight style exercise, all of those things can be utilized effectively as an interval training workout to stimulate improvements in all of those metrics that we were talking about there. So I don't think, and again, we're talking general health improvement here. You know, if you're an athlete, you try to train very sport specifically. And so if you're a cyclist, you, you better train with interval tri- cycling to try and get better. But, you know, for most people, that's not the key driver. They just want to enhance their cardiorespiratory fitness and other health metrics. And so probably varying it up is... Uh, uh, is a good strategy, but the specific type of
2: movement doesn't matter so much. Just whatever you like, whatever you enjoy doing, correct? Yeah. So, what's a good interval workout for? Uh, I get to say a rank beginner.
0: Yeah. So two ways to answer this question. One is, you know, probably you want to get out of your comfort zone, but again, you're not doing this all out nine or 10 on a 10 point scale exercise. And so, you know, if, if your standard exercise is walking around the block or continuous moderate exercise at about a five there, you know, in getting out of your comfort zone, start with a six, maybe get into a seven and, you know, Do that for a minute or so and then back off. But classic examples would be, you know, three minutes on, three minutes off and there's a a ton of research, uh, much of it out of Japan, that has looked at this interval walking as a strategy, and just showing the tremendous benefits that that can elicit. Again, we're just talking brisk walking here. Another classic protocol, largely developed in Norway, is the four by four. So that's four four minute efforts that are relatively high in intensity, and then you know you you go from there. And what tends to happen is the Intensity goes up and the duration of the intervals goes down. So we've looked at, you know, a 10 by 1 protocol. And so, you know, how hard you're working there for a minute is harder than the 4 minute protocol but again, you're only doing a minute, not four of it, right? And, and you repeat that in a sort of on-off pattern. And I think that's also one of the beauties of interval training is the infinite variety. People say, what's the best interval training protocol on it? I don't think it matters, right? Again, generally speaking, unless you're a athlete training for a very specific performance outcome, for most of us, it doesn't matter. And, and hopefully that's empowering and hopefully, you know, it takes away the boredom a little bit because, you know, vary up the intervals. There's, there's only so many ways to get on a treadmill and jog at a moderate pace for hour or so but with intervals you can really vary it up intensity duration of both work recovery
2: periods all of that that japanese protocol is that the tabata protocol
0: No, I get no, it it would sort of be one over the Tabata protocol. So, there there has been some classic interval training workout in Japan almost at the ends of the spectrum. So, that three minutes on, three minutes off, that's just very much brisk or interval walking. Whereas Professor Izumi Tabata is, you know, the, the father of Tabata intervals. That's at the complete other end of the spectrum. And that's, you know, 20 seconds at a 10 out of 10 pace, right? As hard as you can go. 10 second recovery, and then you do it again eight times. So, you know, a Tabata workout classically lasts four minutes, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, repeated eight times. But a Tabata workout is one of the most challenging interval protocols that you can do.
2: Okay. So yeah, the, the key takeaway there is the more intense you go, the shorter your workout can be, but the less intense, if you're doing just a walk, your intervals will have to be longer. And so your workout overall will take longer.
0: That's right. You know, at the end of the day, there's no free lunch, right? And so if you definitely want the benefits of brief exercise, it needs to be intense. And that's not necessarily for everyone. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can still do interval training. It doesn't have to be this all out as hard as you can go, but you know, you're, you're invested then for a couple of
2: minutes and repeating that at least, uh, you know, three, four or five times. Uh, one you highlight that I like is, uh, the, the Wingate classic. What's that one about? Yeah.
0: So the, the Wingate is sort of a classic test in exercise physiology. It's also known as the Wingate anaerobic test, going back to our earlier discussion. And that's because it's 30 seconds as hard as you can go. And it's actually uh, performed on a specialized bike or a specialized ergometer that sort of gives back just what you're able to put out. And so, you know, even as you're fatiguing, you're still having to uh, to go. It's about the longest 30 seconds of your life. And so our initial work was utilizing a Wingate protocol as sort of the extreme, right? It was a proof you know proof of concept studies at the time and so people would do these protocols where it took you know four or five six of those wind gates with a few minutes in between these were very very demanding uh, workouts and you know over you know it's almost a variation on a tabata workout and then over time we've sort of dropped the overall time dropped the
2: overall intensity and looked at other protocols yeah you have the it's the 10 by one is your variation of the wind gate
0: That's right. And again, you know, all different protocols appeal to different people. But probably if I had to pick one that seems to be widely suited or widely rated as not bad, it's this 10 by one protocol, you know, almost seemingly hits that sweet spot between it. You know, the intervals are not too long, but they're not too hard either. At least they're not all out. And then more recent research by others has shown that, you know, five by one, can be almost as good as 10 by one. And so it's a bit like, you know, bench press exercise, you know, Three sets of bench are gonna be better than one set, but you know, maybe only five percent better. You know, so if you do one set of heavy bench, you might improve your strength by 25 or 30 percent. If you do three sets, maybe you're gonna do 35 or 40 percent. But again, if 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 your time pressed, that one set might be enough. And so, you know, maybe a few intervals are giving you 80, 90 percent of the benefit that, you know, a much larger dose of intervals might do.
2: Right. So yeah, the 10 by one, just for listeners, your first sprint is at an intensity of five. You do that for a minute. Then you rest one minute for recovery. Then your second sprint is going to be at a slightly higher intensity level. So six, do that for a minute. And then you just keep that cycle going until you get to an intensity level of nine
0: that's right and so you know one of the reasons we came up with that is because you know for a lot of people they're not outside trying to you know tailor their specific you know uh, intensities or that you can imagine if if you're exercising on a machine or you jump on a stationary bike it allows you to set a workload and just leave it there right for for the intervals so you know whatever if it's a 20 point scale and you you dial it up to a 12 the first minute at 12 only feels like a 5 out of 10. But of course, as you start to fatigue over the course of the workout, you're you're still at a 12, but the relative effort starts to creep up. And so again, it's a way to make it sort of simple. Okay, I'm going to just keep it at a 12, but it's going to feel harder and harder each time as I move through the workout.
2: So your book is called The One Minute Workout. It's a catchy title. I'm sure the publisher... Your editor's like, we got to call this the one-minute workout because it's going to sell books. But is there a workout that lasts about a minute that can give you all these health benefits we've been talking about? (laughs) So, yes, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But you're
0: right. The the one-minute workout, sort of a tongue-in-cheek, but it was based on some of these micro workouts where we're having people do three 20 second hard efforts now you know the workout took about 10 minutes start to finish but the hard stuff was only a minute three 20 second efforts interspaced with a lot of recovery uh in between why i say a minute could be good is now we're starting to look at what we call exercise snacks and so how we define an exercise snack is a vigorous bout of exercise that lasts for a minute or less And you do these periodically throughout the day. So you can imagine... On your way to work in the morning, you do a one-minute vigorous effort. You know, maybe you come into work, you take the stairs rather than the uh, the elevator. As you're leaving at night for the subway, you know, you exercise at a vigorous pace to get to the subway rather than uh, a pedestrian pace. And so that's known as an exercise snack. And you sprinkle these through the day. And definitely in small laboratory-based studies, if people do that a few times a week for a couple of weeks, we can see measurable improvements in their cardiorespiratory fitness. That work. This small scale lab work is, is complemented by some other work that I've been involved with, led out of the University of Sydney, where the terminology, and again, you alluded to it earlier, there's, you know, law, it's almost an alphabet soup when we start talking about this, but the notion is vigorous, intermittent lifestyle physical activity or vilpa but if we break that down so vigorous is the effort that you require and hopefully your listeners have a good idea what vigorous is by now intermittent so it's periodic spread throughout the day and it's lifestyle physical activity this is not structured exercise that you build into your calendar this is as you're going about your day you know you're you're leaving work you got to get to the subway you can get there at a vigorous pace or at a pedestrian pace you know you get off a long flight you have the choice of the escalator, or you can you know, grab your built-in workout gear, your suitcase, and you can walk up the stairs, and that takes you about a minute. That would be an example of VILPA, carrying a heavy backpack as you're doing your shopping. And research, again, that I was involved with in a very large sample, over 25,000 individuals who had worn accelerometers, showed that as little as three to four minutes of accumulated VILPA per day was associated with marked reductions in all-cause mortality. We're talking 30% reductions as compared to people who engaged in no vigorous intensity physical activity through the day. And the risk reduction was even greater for cardiovascular disease. So I think compelling, not cause and effect evidence, but compelling epidemiological evidence that small amounts of vigorous physical activity can really move the needle in terms of enhancing our health. And so, you know, I've just talked about there about larger epidemiological evidence, small laboratory-based studies, and where our research is moving now is sort of trying to round out the middle there. Larger, longer, randomized controlled trials where we're trying to look at this type of lifestyle intervention and see, you know, how does it work when we try and use a best practice design with control groups and, and things like that. All right. So takeaway there take the stairs. Absolutely. Take, take, take the, the stairs. stairs. A few minutes of vigorous effort a
2: day really, really pays benefits. And it feeds into the notion that every little bit counts. Well, Martin, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, sure. So I do have a website, martingabala.com and sort of that's a one-stop
0: shop for you know other podcast interviews like this. People learn about the book. People learn about a, a free online course that some colleagues and I at McMaster offer. I'm not on X a lot, but
2: uh, you can find me at Gabala M. Fantastic. Well, Martin Gabala, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Dr. Martin Gabbala. He's the author of the book, The One Minute Workout. It's available on amazon.com. Check out his website at martingabala.com where you can find more information about his work. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash hit and that's spelled H-I-I-T. You'll find links to resources, including links to more details about how to do some of those specific hit protocols we talked about towards the end of the show. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on the podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not listen to AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.